Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about recognizing Christmas. Midnight clear, the star in the sky says the child is here. It's Christmas. The angels sang, then we listened to them. They said, Get yourself over into Bethlehem. It's Christmas. <laughs> yes, it is. Men came upon the scene Riding on a camel That's a mean machine It's Christmas The shepherds came And we heard them say This is gonna be another major holiday It's Christmas <laughs> Yes it is They roll in looking for a place to stay. The hotel's safe. There ain't no way, no room in the inn. No, 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 no room in the inn. No room in the inn. In the inn. They're out of the inn and around to the back. They all booked up. And that's a fact. It's Christmas. Questions that's come up in recent weeks on podcasts that I enjoy shows like Shunky Lab from the United Kingdom and Take Him With You from you know, the northwestern part of the United States. 
asking questions about what are your favorite Christmas songs. And the drawback that I have when people ask me the question of what is your all-time favorite Christmas song is that my favorite is unavailable. I can't send somebody off in the direction of a store and or have them download you know, from iTunes or somewhere else because it's simply that far out of print. I've used it as the theme music for today's show, as a matter of fact. It's a rap group from the late 1980s, maybe even the mid-1980s, called Society Threat, with a real old-school, scratching-jams style, putting together the melody of several of my favorite hymns, uh, Joy to the World, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, O Come All, the, All Ye Faithful, as the music for a rap about Christmas. I look around this neighborhood of mine, and it doesn't look nothing like Palestine, but it's Christmas. Yes, it is. And that's the name of the song. It's Christmas. Yes, it is. With a message that isn't just an irreverent, fun, playful use of music. I mean, the, uh, the no room in the inn line is fun and intended to be funny. But the track itself ends with the concept of forgetting what you get or what you spend. Open up your heart and let the spirit in. It's a shame that a song with this much whimsy, with this much relevance for Christmas, I mean, it's, it's interwoven with Christmas carols, is completely unavailable. But if there were a copy to buy today, I would buy it. In fact, if there were a copy to buy today, I would buy several for my friends. I happen to own two copies of the 12-inch single on vinyl, so my commitment to the music of Society Threat really can't be questioned. The only question is... How do you recommend something as your all-time favorite Christmas track when you really can't share it with anybody and they couldn't buy it if they wanted to? Well, that's the challenge, I suppose. But it goes to show, from my perspective, that even in an area like Christmas music, where you may least expect to find a good, solid holiday message, uh, rap, you know, 1980s rap, no less, it's there. And there's no doubt in my mind that Society Threat, whoever they are, intended you know, the song in a very heartfelt way. They took it seriously. When we get to the different drummer today, I'm going to talk a little bit more about holiday music as well. And I'm going to get to another set of artists and an executive producer known for taking their music very seriously. Last year, I recorded a holiday-themed episode, which was an audio commentary for the you know, classic TV show, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And in that different drummer segment, I talked about maybe this year being the year that I would name, if only through the different drummer segment, my all-time favorite instrumental Christmas album. Because last year, talking about Jim Scafish, I called him out, and I still feel the same way now as I did a year ago, as the musician behind my second favorite instrumental Christmas album of all time, Jim Scafish playing in a piano jazz trio, an album called Tidings of Comfort and Joy that is available to buy. I really enjoyed doing that audio commentary last year, perhaps a bit of a challenge with what was broadcast as an hour-long show. I may come back to it next year, and I want to make mention of it here, just in case I do. There's always a chance I won't. But just in case I do, the, the show that I've got in mind is not easy to track down, and having a few months of advanced time to do a little legwork or perhaps get lucky and catch it on uh, you know, TV this year or you know, via Netflix, maybe somebody will have it streaming. It's also a Rankin-Bass production, so you've got a, a similar vibe to what you would see in shows like Santa Claus is Coming to Town or The Little Drummer Boy. This one, though, is a later release. came out, I think, in the late 70s or even early 80s, called Nestor 
the long-eared Christmas donkey. Now, I wouldn't presume to make a comparison between Nestor and Rudolph. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer may be the single finest Christmas you know, film of all time, or at least among my favorites. Uh, I don't visit any movie related to Christmas with the same regularity that I do that particular TV special. No, Nestor is comic in some ways unintended, but a similar vibe. Instead of you know, Johnny Marks writing all the songs and Burl Ives doing most of the singing and pulling together a story around a set of songs, what you have instead in this case is Roger Miller doing the songs and appearing as a narrator and telling a Christmas story about a donkey. And if you know much about the Christmas story in the Gospels, you might be able to guess how this particular donkey fits in to a Gospel account. And if I go there, that's what I'll do next year. But this year, I want to talk a little bit instead about other nativity stories, and particularly nativity stories that appear on film. But I've got to be honest, I'm struggling right now to stay in a Christmas spirit. My holiday spirits this year were as high as I think they've been through you know working in, in a retail environment all those years. It's almost a very difficult thing to maintain a consistently positive Christmas spirit. When in some cases, in some elements of retail, record store retail, for example, you sometimes get to see the worst of things, and it's not always easy to keep that uh, joy in your world. But in this case, this year, I've done a really good job of staying at a certain level of spiritual high. But I think for a lot of us uh, and a lot of Americans in particular, that sense of you know positive outlook, that sense of joy took a real hit. Um, on a Friday in the middle of December, when tragic and horrible violence occurred at an elementary school in Connecticut. I'm trying to balance in my head how to keep the positive attitude I want for a Christmas show together with some very serious commentary that probably has to be made about the events that have taken place in this past week. And I think how I want to handle it is I want to start off talking about Christmas and talking about Christmas memories and getting to the different drummer segment and talking a lot about the music of Christmas. And then if you stick with me after the different drummer, I'll turn serious, meaning that if you don't want to address these kinds of issues at this time of year, if you'd rather wait a couple of weeks, if you'd rather come back later and finish off this show, feel free to divide it right there at the end of the different drummer segment. I'm pretty sure that's where I'm going to take a turn because as much as I'd like to ignore what's happened in the world, and as much as I you know, have maintained pretty consistently that I prefer to give current events a little bit more time to boil before I try to serve anything up around them, this one, it just can't wait. But related to the question of the politics of the day, not dealing with the uh, Christian hysteria over the war on Christmas, which is truly in my mind the right word for it. To me, there's nothing offensive about happy holidays. In fact, I'm very persuaded and very, in many ways, consoled by some of the posts I've seen by a lot of my fellow Christians saying ecumenical things like, if you're a Jewish person and you wish to wish me a happy Hanukkah, I'm overjoyed. You know, if you're somebody who believes in, you know, Kwanzaa, if that's what you celebrate, if you wish me a happy Kwanzaa, fantastic. If you're somebody who doesn't celebrate any religious holiday from a religious perspective and wants to wish me a generic happy holidays, that's great. And if you're a Christian and you want to wish me a Merry Christmas, that's just as great 
as all of those other things. What's not good is when any one of those groups decides that being confronted with a different holiday at this holiday-laden time of year is an offense to them is actually an offense to me. I think Ben Stein basically said it, and I'm summarizing or paraphrasing here, that anytime somebody wants to greet me with a smile on their face and give me a wish of goodwill, I'll take it. And I don't care what names you use. You know, if you're going to call me a pleasant name and wish me well, far be it for me to tell you that you did it in the wrong way. But I'm not going to talk about that element of religious conservatism. Instead, I just want to muse on the idea of the nativity story itself. I could make some references to movies. In fact, I probably will here because I think that the theme of nativity story does run through a lot of the movies that we take for granted today. And I'm not talking about the movie named nativity story and intended to be a biblical film you know, presentation. I'm talking about other movies. If I do this the way I intend, I'm going to make some mention of films like The Matrix, perhaps the Disney cartoon Lilo and Stitch, and certainly my all-time favorite. I'll get to my all-time favorite nativity story uh, when I get back to this question of movies. But the one common theme, I think, that would run through any truly accurate nativity story, whether it's trying to tell it biblically or trying to tell it allegorically, are things which might be upsetting to people who are on the edges of our political spectrum. So if you're an absolutist from a conservative camp, you've got to deal with the fact that the Bible is relating a story here about an unwed mother. There's possibly a good deal of years between Joseph and Mary in their age. We don't know this for sure, but you often see it presented that way, and it's logically a possibility from the text itself. There is certainly a relative lack of wealth or resources or power in this Joseph and Mary relationship. There's, for example, no room in the inn. But more importantly, no way for them to buy a better answer than that. You know, if the king or the prince or somebody with a tremendous amount of wealth showed up and there was no room in the inn. I imagine that the innkeeper might have found a spot for those persons and someone who was perhaps of lowly stature or late coming to fill in that last vacancy might find themselves out of luck. So no, there's not a lot of wealth. Certainly Joseph and Mary would not be part of what you know, political liberals would describe as the 1%. We know this. Their comparative social status was low, but also the comparative social status of the shepherds. When the angels choose to make an appearance and reveal their plan for peace on earth and goodwill toward men, they don't show up to the rabbi. They don't show up to the king or the prince or the local governor. They don't show up to the innkeeper or any of the other business owners or merchants. They show up in the middle of a field to a bunch of shepherds. More importantly, they don't show up to Benny Hinn either. Now, many of you may not be familiar with the televangelist Benny Hinn, but on more than one occasion, this individual has promised that it rallies, often it rallies in faraway places like Africa, that when he shows up, Jesus Christ is going to appear bodily in the second coming and stand on the stage with him. It's not the kind of person that the nativity story recorded in scripture tells us that the angels are likely to appear to. In fact, there's very little reason to believe that somebody like Benny Hinn would be on the short list of people that Jesus would appear on stage with either, as far as it goes. The biblical account, particularly the one in Matthew's gospel, talks about the slaughter of hundreds of infants. I'll get more detail behind that idea in a moment or two. But again, 
for this to be a favored story among politically active Christians, well, you've got to wonder how comfortable it is to read the story as written, to deal with it in the text as it's presented by the gospel writers, when it also includes a staggering slaughter of children. And then there's also this notion of these kings. Now, I'm going to question whether we're going to consider them to truly be kings, or maybe they're more scientists or researchers or delegates or perhaps ambassadors. But it's a bit like a UN delegation of sorts being sent from another country into this Jewish territory, being managed by Roman authorities under the Roman Empire, and they're basically doing nothing more than meddling. You may have people from one nation, they may be from two or three nations, but however many wise men there were, and whatever we may mean by wise men, they were unquestionably, from King Herod's perspective, meddling in the internal affairs of another nation in a way that was ultimately unwelcome. So from a, again, politically conservative perspective, you may not be happy with unwed mothers. You may not be happy with men marrying women who are pregnant and much younger. You may not be happy with just the hero of the story being these very unimportant people, for want of a better word. Not to mention the shepherds, another set of unimportant people from a perspective of social standing or the, just the notion of infanticide on a huge scale. And a lot of that infanticide coming because these outsiders, this delegation from another country, didn't do what the king asked of them. They didn't do their, they didn't honor him diplomatically by complying with his requests. And his response to that was, of course, you know, a murderous rampage. So there are things about the Christmas story that we're perhaps not comfortable with. And not to just point a finger over at conservatives and say, let's not be naive about this story and how much we love it. When there are so many things there that I bet we wouldn't love today if that same story was playing out before our eyes. I mentioned this in last week's show, talking about the end of the world and revelations. There are a lot of things that dispensational conservatives talk about from the perspective of end times and so forth. But I think the dominionists would be very unhappy if revelations played out before their eyes the way they think it would. Because my guess is that the second coming of Christ would find them to be more aligned with the beast, or at least with the empire, than with the remnant or with the chosen. And here, the same thing. When you look at some of the things that people have said about unwed mothers and so forth and so on, you might decide that there's a lot of people who call themselves Christian who would have nothing but scorn or ridicule or absolute indifference to offer a character in the story like Mary. But the entire story itself, from a liberal worldview, if you go to the other side of the political spectrum and look at those absolutists who would fall under the heading liberal, well, it's not just that there's details which they may find offense to. Maybe they would accept every single detail at face value, but they reject the larger storyline. From a liberal's perspective, the movie The Matrix is ultimately all about The Matrix. And... When Neo succeeds in his mission at the end of the show and the Matrix is completely dissolved and disappeared, they might be looking around saying, well, what a dump. <laughs> Look what we're left with. Like Cosmo, liberal thinking may decide that the world was better off with a really good illusion than with a cold, hard truth and nowhere really positive to go from there, especially if you're a film critic and you know that the next places you're going to go are into the sequels of The Matrix, which is a much more devastating and you know, hideous territory than the actual setting of the films themselves. 
If I make a comparison to a movie like The Matrix as a nativity story, I frankly would be shocked if anybody who takes movies seriously and understands the gospel account well, I'd be shocked if they didn't understand the connection. You've got somebody coming in to a real world from out of the pages of a prophecy or a myth or an illusion who is actually the chosen one. And that person immediately finds himself under attack by you know, powerful forces, the kind of forces, the kind of kingly forces that would go in and slaughter all the children under the age of two because they needed to make sure that this prophecy didn't get fulfilled. You see, we make some mistakes in our thinking about the Christmas story. For one thing, we have this mental image of Jesus being born in a stable with farm animals around. But most researchers tell us it was probably more like a cave, like a hillside cave, and might not have been a terrain too unfamiliar to the shepherds, as a matter of fact. And then, you know, nowhere do you see the word stable in any of the gospel accounts. There were animals around, but you don't see the word stable. The other thing is that there's a great deal of duration that went by, somewhat between the birth and the appearance of the shepherds, but much more so between the birth and the appearance of what we call the wise men. Now, whether these wise men were really kings of any sort is an open question. Again, they seem to have more of a scientific mentality. They were doing research. They were studying things. And they had questions, perhaps astronomical questions, perhaps archaeological questions or anthropological questions. But they came to ask questions, and they appeared to the king. Now, when the wise men finally find their way to the place where the baby was laying, probably not the same place where the baby was born, because again, months, years perhaps, had gone by. The best way of looking at it, from the perspective, again, of Matthew's gospel, is that by the time these wise men had come and gone, more than one full year had gone by, and perhaps two full years had gone by. Because when Herod realizes that he has been tricked by these wise men, and that rather than going and continuing on their quest to f resolve this mystery that they've seen in the stars, that they've seen in prophecy, and finding the child, and going back to Herod and reporting to him, they you know, got communication. It says in the passage they you know, maybe received their communication in a dream or in a vision. But God basically says, don't go back to Herod, go home by a different route. His intent is to murder this child, because your prophecy has confirmed his suspicion and is consistent with what he has been told by the scribes and the ra and rabbis, that this child, if born to be the Messiah, is going to be a king that is going to be greater than Herod. So when Herod realizes that the wise men have tricked him, that they've gone home by another route, all he knew was that this child was somewhere in Bethlehem. And when he goes there, he goes there with strict orders for his soldiers to kill any child under the age of two. Now, that could have just been you know, a, a desperate, generous attempt to cover a broad range of territory, but it's clearly not like it's depicted in TV and in movies or even in nativity plays where the shepherds are gone and you know, five minutes later, here come the wise men. The shepherds are gone. The family is still in the process of taking care of the baby. They haven't gotten yet to the process of offering an initial sacrifice, you know, for the birth of the child. They haven't presented him in the temple. Time has gone by. The wise men show up and angels tell the wise men, go somewhere else. Don't go back to Herod. Also tells Joseph and Mary, time to flee to Egypt. Get out of here because there's about to be this wholesale slaughter of all of the under two aged male children born in that town. 
So you have this matrix-type element where, again, you've got this, this notion of this chosen one, this nativity, this incarnation of sorts, where although we're initially presented with Neo as a character in the real world, he actually becomes incarnate. And what's depicted in the film is almost a birthing process into what's really the real world instead of the matrix itself. Another example of this would perhaps be Lilo and Stitch. I've mentioned before, this is one of my favorite Disney cartoons. I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a classic. Being released in the midst of what we'll have to call one day the Pixar era as a non-Pixar film, it is both a standout and at the same time, well, not a Pixar film. But essentially, you've got this being, this creature, unwelcome in his alien land, in this faraway planet where he's been created as a genetic mutation with the intention of its mad scientist to destroy the world, to come to whatever place he's you know, deployed as a judge, truly as an executioner, happens to land on a small Hawaiian island and being itself lost. And in Lilo and Stitch, a parallel passage of stories being told because the ugly duckling, the story of the ugly duckling is the undercurrent as well makes a difference in the lives of the people that it encounters. Instead of being a malevolent force, the Stitch character literally stitches together a family that was falling completely apart due to a tragedy beyond anyone's control. It reminds me a little bit of another film that, you know, an acquaintance of mine from California recently called out as part of his holiday viewing. And I thought to myself, yeah, you know what? The movie While You Were Sleeping, the comedy starring Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman, is, you know, set at Christmas time. So you can make the argument that since Christmas is such a central theme, Christmas parties, gift giving, and so forth, that maybe it's a holiday film as well. Not exactly a nativity film, but in some ways, like Lilo and Stitch, you've got this outsider trying to fill a hole, perhaps unwittingly or unwillingly, filling a hole that a family has experienced at the, you know, tragic, life-threatening circumstances to one of the kids, and at the same time kind of finding her own salvation by replacing the family that she'd lost. Uh, a heartwarming comedy, funny in lots of ways, but also one that really kind of hits home for me anyway, on the issue of family. Family being a central theme of both Lilo and Stitch and While You Were Sleeping. If you were looking for an unusual holiday film that, unlike some of the others I've mentioned, really is set at Christmas time and is about Christmas, and you've never seen While You Were Sleeping, I can't think of a better Sandra Bullock comedy to watch. And even if you don't like Sandra Bullock comedies at all, this one's worth, it's worth the time. Now, to me, the best nativity film I've ever seen, and I didn't get all the way through the one called The Nativity, so I'm not making a comparison to that. But when people ask me, what is my favorite Christmas movie? And if I answer the question strictly from the perspective of depicting nativity, depicting it in a, in a real way, in an interesting way, in a life-changing way, and doing it within science fiction, no doubt. I don't think I've seen a nativity film better than Children of Men. Now, I've heard criticism of the movie coming from people that I have a great deal of esteem for who've read the book. So I have this disadvantage. I haven't read the book. The impression I get, though, is that the things that I like best about the movie, the book does even better. But you definitely have this notion of a humanity in peril, of a way of life about to be completely drowned out into extinction, and what happens when life unexpectedly forms there? Now, I mentioned the nature of the Christmas story has elements in it that your average conservative would be very uncomfortable with. 
And I think The Children of Men does it very well. Instead of portraying the mother in that story as being, you know, virginal from a Roman Catholic perspective, or truly a virgin, in the, in the case of this being an, an incarnation without sexual intercourse, Children of Men covers that ground by depicting a world where the risk of pregnancy is completely gone, and with it hope, because no one's ever going to have another kid. Women are incapable of getting pregnant. Men are incapable of getting women pregnant. And the woman who finally does, the, the woman in the story, Children of Men, who finally does find that she is bearing a child, couldn't possibly name the father. Because there's no, there was no longer any reason for her to worry over the possibility of getting pregnant. And she had too many partners you know, with which to keep score. Now, a lot of these movies, whether they be a hard PG-13 or an R, in the case of The Matrix, or in Children of Men, definitely an R-rated film, these might not be what you'd think of first when you're talking about traditional Christmas movie fare. But Inappropriate Conversations is about speaking to adults as adults about adult themes. You want to talk about something presented on film that's talking about life coming into the world in a game-changing way? You're probably better off with a movie like Children of Men than you ever would be with a saccharine, stale, two-dimensional depiction of Jesus Christ, whether his birth is life or his death and resurrection that you almost always see every single time when the made-for-TV movie epic is produced, or even when a film from the religious right is put into theaters as an answer to the darkness that's in cinema. And again, not a criticism of the movie The Nativity, I haven't seen it. But part of the reason I haven't seen it is I didn't feel like I had a niche to fill there, because in some ways, that niche of seeing a truly crumbling world desperately in need of a savior to be born was depicted much better for me in Children of Men. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over the counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and Blackberry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by JewelBeat.com It might be easy to jump to the conclusion that there's nothing simple about the holidays at my house. And that's really not the case. My outdoor lighting is a very simple display. 
The Christmas tree that we decorate is decorated with the ornaments we've accumulated over the years. We're a, a home that tends to have one tree, not more than one tree, not one upstairs, one downstairs. We tend to keep things very simple. And I like Christmas. Well, simple. I also like my Christmas music. Very simple. And that was probably obvious from last year's different drummer, Jim Skafish, and this year's different drummer, Phil Manzanera. exactly does Phil Manzanera have to do with Christmas? Well, my favorite all-time Christmas recording, or at least my favorite all-time instrumental Christmas recording, is one that was, you know, called Christmas with the Players. It's performed by Andy McKay and Friends and produced by Phil Manzanera. In fact, if you see it in stores, it may still be like my CD cover, one that carries the, has a winter scene and carries the name Manzanera and Mackey present Christmas and then the Players truly an instrumental album with what sounds like almost a street musician approach to the playing. It's almost a busking quality in terms of the style of play. Traditional songs, ones that you would recognize, are mixed in with traditional songs you wouldn't recognize. The review on allmusic.com by Aaron Badgley words it this way, and I like his turn of phrase. On this album, Andy McKay and his friends, known as The Players, present an album of traditional Christmas carols. McKay does not deviate from the traditional arrangements with these songs, and he has also picked up some classic songs that are not heard often on Christmas albums, While Shepherds Watched, Past Three O'Clock, and Once in David City, to name three. This adds to the originality of the entire package, and it's an instrumental album, which means this is perfect CD for background playing during Christmas festivities. You'll hear songs like O Little Town of Bethlehem, the traditional version of Away in the Manger, Joy to the World, We Wish You a Merry Christmas. But you're also going to hear other songs that you may recognize vaguely as being Christmas tracks, The Holly Bears the Berry or Coventry Carol. But in all cases, these are going to be performed with what sounds like an almost original instruments approach. There's a lot of wind in these woodwinds. There's an accordion type, you know, music box kind of sound. And when I hear it, again, it wouldn't shock me if I was walking through a Dickensian scene, you know, on a London street, and this was a band playing either in a corner or in a square somewhere. So my all-time favorite album of Christmas instrumental music, and maybe Christmas music period, The Players, and of course Phil Manzanera doesn't play on this. He's an electric guitarist by trade, but he produced it. The executive produced it, as a matter of fact. When you look at the career of Manzanera, you could almost draw one of those trees of music and find a connection to him where you're only two or three generations away from a fascinating variety of stuff. Roxy music is perhaps what he's best known for, and he's got a great origin story there as well. 
Manzanera was one of the many people who auditioned to be part of the group that was just forming to be named Roxy Music, but he wasn't first choice. First choice was perhaps a better-known guitarist at the time from the prog rock group The Nice called David O'List, and he became the lead guitarist at the beginning of Roxy Music's career. But at one point, he quit abruptly, and in that interim stage, Manzanera had signed on in the role of Rhodey, uh, sticking with the band, observing the band, Here's the interesting thing. Manzanera was later invited, in the absence of this guitarist, to go with them on the rehearsal as a sound mixer. But at the last minute, he was asked to stand in on guitar. Now, the group didn't know this. Apparently, he hadn't shared this widely. But as an observer, as somebody waiting in the wings, he had learned their entire you know, catalog. Everything that so far the band had written and played, he was capable of stepping right in as an understudy and playing. Now, part of that is simply the skill and ability of Manzanera. I'm going to try not to praise too much. I don't want to risk overpraising, but an incredibly skilled and versatile player. But the other thing was just simply the attitude of saying, you know what, I could quit over this, I could sulk, I could go form my own rival band. But he was willing to stick with the group of people that he felt he was you know, supposed to be playing with and was capable of learning what he needed to learn to step right in and immediately function. Now, as much as I enjoy Roxy Music, I'm a much bigger fan of Manzanera for the independence that he produced, for his own works. And the first solo album that he released was Diamond Head. Remains one of my favorite of his albums, and the title track, perhaps my favorite of his instrumental songs, saying a lot. This is somebody who performed both uh, instrumentally and as an accompanist for singers in bands ranging from Roxy Music and Quiet Sun to 801. I'm going to get to 801 in just a second. But if you draw this family tree around from all the people he's played with, you can get from Phil Manzanera pretty quickly to even the far outskirts of British rock music at the time with the band Crass, the connection, the drummer from Quiet Sun. Now, the drummer of Quiet Sun was the principal songwriter of a track called Wrong Wrong. And Wrong Wrong was one of my favorite songs, perhaps my favorite vocal song even, from the album 801 Live. And so you get this connection between this person drumming at times for Crass, drumming at times for Quiet Sun, and writing a song that was remade and recorded live in concert on a kind of a supergroup recording, a completely unknown, of course, supergroup called 801. Wikipedia describes 801 this way. Manzanera's next major collaboration was the critically acclaimed concert recording 801 Live, which was recorded at a 1976 London show performed by the, quote, special occasion band 801. The group was comprised of Manzanera, Brian Eno on vocals, synths, and treatments, Quiet Sun bassist Bill McCormick and curved air keyboardist Francis Monkman, and a 19-year-old drumming prodigy Simon Phillips, among others, pulling together to make this live recording. It broke new ground in live concert recording, being one of the first live LPs to use a direct injection method of recording, in which the signals from various electric instruments were fed directly into the recording console, enabling a dramatic improvement in the fidelity over the early method of just placing microphones near the various instruments and amplifiers. The 801 Live was such a success that the band later would put out, same year in fact, a studio album called Listen Now. These were the two first pieces of vinyl I ever owned from Manzanera. Again, despite the respect I had for Roxy Music, I didn't own any of the recordings myself. 
The truth is, somebody who was listening to what you might call college rock at the time, you didn't necessarily have to own the vinyl to hear songs by Roxy Music. But you did have to own the vinyl if you wanted to hear any of these instrumental recordings by Manzanera or the live recordings from 801. But things that's stunning to me, if you listen to 801 Live or to the Listen Now studio album, is that you're listening to music recorded in 1976. It's a little bit surprising how accomplished and how ahead of its time, at least from a sonic, dynamic, you know, oral range, these particular tracks are. But that is something that I think probably has followed Manzanera throughout his career, whether with Quiet Sun or performing on the first couple of solo Brian Eno albums. If you've heard Brian Eno's Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy, there are moments where there are references to 801 in that particular you know, recording. And perhaps it's a tip of a hat to the work that that Manzanera and Eno had done together. Manzanera is about as good as you can get if you wanted to explore what we might call traditionally rock instrumental music and does so with a Latin flair. Now, a lot of that has to do with his background. Manzanera was born in London to a Colombian mother and an English father, but he spent a lot of time as as he was growing up in lots of places. Uh, Wikipedia cites Hawaii, Venezuela, Colombia, and Cuba, and mentions specifically that it was in Cuba that he first picked up the guitar, and it was a Spanish guitar owned by his mother. When you're dealing with Manzanera the musician, you never know exactly what you're going to get, but with one exception, that being a collaboration between Manzanera and John Wetton, I haven't found one that's disappointing. And my favorite of all includes work where he didn't even pick up an instrument and in no way directly collaborated to the music making, but instead used his influence as a producer to come up with a Christmas album that simply must be heard. edition of Inappropriate Conversations is probably only the second that doesn't feature instrumental music by Kevin McLeod from his website Incompetech.com. Instead, I've gone with, you know, different drummer intros and outros from that Phil Manzanera produced record, Christmas with the Players. And of course, we started off the show today with Society Threat and their track, It's Christmas, Yes It Is. That's how we'll end the show. But before I let Society Threat have the last musical word, I feel like I really need to address some of the other issues that have gone on here in the last few weeks. As predictable as it is that when a school shooting of this nature occurs, and to me, this is the worst one ever. Now, I realize that is potentially insensitive and dismissive of what happened on the campus of Virginia Tech University, but in some ways... The situation on a college campus is very different than the situation inside an elementary school. For one thing, most students, most of the time, have options of whether to attend a course or not. But when you're talking about high school, junior high school, and especially elementary school, there isn't a lot of discretion there. 
The kids have to be there. They have to be in the classroom that they're assigned to be in. I can remember when I was in those first two or three grades of elementary school, you spent the entire day with the same set of 30 other students. You would move maybe from classroom to classroom throughout the day and switch teachers. But I can remember being in that same group all day long. So instead of what would happen later in high school where you would mix and match and maybe you start off in a homeroom English class with a bunch of other students, but then some of you would go to different math courses. The people who were stronger in math would end up in trig and pre-calc and calc, and those who were weaker would end up in geometry and algebra too, trying to maybe get the way to where they were prepared for some of that higher math. But in elementary school, you're really shepherded around. You're stuck together. You're sitting ducks. And so as predictable as it is that when a shooting like that happens, the first thing you're going to hear is a great deal of talk about gun control and how can we reduce the scope of these things, taking away the ammunition or making it harder to reload or making forcing the person to pull the trigger that many more times if they really want to try to kill that many people. And it, again, so far in the early goings, it appears that as horrendous as this crime was, it could have been worse. We're hearing stories about students that this gunman certainly could have shot that were hidden from him. And you know, we're hearing that his arsenal was, you know, perhaps, you know, well, we don't know yet. That's the thing. There were two things that I saw on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at IC underscore Greg. And you can reach me on Facebook. I'm going to make a reference to a Facebook post as well. There's an inappropriate conversations page there, too. But the two quotes that I liked best that I saw on Twitter, one was a statement coming from a journalistic perspective, saying, you know, sometimes as a journalist, the best thing you can do in a story like this is not write anything, because we just don't know. I've mentioned before that certainly like on an election night, it's important to not be the very last news agency who gets the story right. But you also don't want to be the first one to get the story wrong either. And that's sort of kind of the situation. But I put up a tweet of my own and I saw tweets by other people that were trying to call out to folks that I've got friends who own guns. I've got friends who are gun enthusiasts. I have friends who are gun salesmen or gun show, you know, people who travel the gun show circuit. They're grieving just as much for these people in Connecticut as everybody else. And it's wrong to demonize those folks. And in some ways, some of those people are hurting more than people from a more liberal perspective are hurting because they're not only sad this happened, they're not only grieving for the, the families who've been ripped apart in this violent way, they're not only angry at the circumstances that led this person to have this opportunity, to take this opportunity to perform this violence, they're worried about their own rights. So you can't convince me that there's this group of evil gun enthusiasts out there who are delighted that this happened any more than I'll buy any crap from people on the right side of the political spectrum that this was somehow engineered by the Obama administration, some sort of a ruse to justify banning guns. Neither one of these extremes makes sense. We're all Americans here. We're all shocked by what's happened. And we're all saddened by it. Does this mean that we shouldn't look at the way we administer the rights to use firearms? No, I think we, we need to look there. I think we need to look at the way we take care of people who've fallen through the cracks in the margins of our society, whether there's a mental health issue, whether there's a bullying problem, whether there's other you know, home-related problems, whatever it is, we've got to look everywhere and put everything on the table and try to solve this problem. It's going to mean that there may be some sacred cows that either need to be slaughtered 
or shepherd it away. Anyone who's not on board with solving this problem shouldn't be listened to. But there is a group of people who I think need to be rebuked. And it's not the people who buy and own guns. It's not people who are hunters. It's not people who work in the healthcare profession and psychiatric care. No, there is a group of people who need to be told that they're wrong in forceful terms, if only because they're absolutely wrong. And that's people who have stepped up, not unlike what I described uh, when I was speaking about the Columbine issue, when I talked about Columbine, Colorado a while back, that would be inappropriate conversations 43, the content of their character. In this case, one of the first groups, one of the first people who stood up to assign blame were pastors. And I'm specifically referring to television pastors. And I'm not even really referring to the TV and radio folks we would call televangelists, but more the political mouthpieces for the religious right, specifically Mike Huckabee and Brian Fisher, the latter associated with the American Family Association and the former uh, you know, previously political candidate, now on Fox News. They have stood up and said, they're not at all surprised that this happened and that it may be God's will because we've forced God out of schools. We forced God out of the public square and kids are not allowed to pray. And therefore, what do you expect? I've got two concurrent opinions to share on this. And they're concurrent because they agree with each other on the question of whether or not it makes any sense at all to talk about what God's allowed to do. The first one I'm going to share is primarily a religious perspective about the providence of God. And the second one I want to share looks at it a little bit more from a legal perspective in terms of talking about whether the assertion that kids are, quote, not allowed to pray in schools is even remotely valid. Let's start with the religious perspective. It's a blog online by Rachel Held Evans at rachelheldevans.com. And this particular article is called God can't be kept out, beginning midway through the blog. You might have heard it from Bill O'Reilly and those who every Christmas work themselves into a frenzy over the war on Christmas. They storm checkout counters to demand that clerks issue them a Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays, crying persecution when inflatable manger scenes are moved from the public courthouses to private property. They demand that every gift purchased, every mall opened late, Every credit card maxed out must be done so in Jesus' name, or else Christ will be taken out of Christmas. They do it because someone told them that God needs a nod from the empire to show up, forgetting somehow that God showed up as a Jew in the Roman Empire, in a barn or a cave, as a minority, after a genocide, to the applause of, few, of a few poor shepherds. If the incarnation tells us anything, it's that God can't be kept out. The other perspective I'll share is from a, a Facebook post. The initial post was from Rick Moyer, and he basically, very succinctly, said, uh, said this. God doesn't live in schools, churches, or homes. He lives in hearts. Here's the other response. This is what Jesus came to share with us. It's what Paul told Gentiles on his travels. Other Christians have spoken very different words in recent days and have deceived themselves and seemingly are deceiving others. God doesn't live in schools. Is he welcome there? Absolutely. 
Every time a student or teacher prays as Jesus clearly instructed in Matthew chapter 6, God is there. Our Lord never asked for a pledge of allegiance each morning, though. In fact, these public demonstrations of piety are what Jesus sternly told us not to do. Why are prominent Christians complaining that we aren't doing what Christ forbade, using words like thou must not? Why are those same public speakers telling kids they cannot pray at school when they clearly can? All court rulings, including those stopping indoctrination, firmly protect individual prayer. All presidential proclamations and executive orders, including those by Clinton, Bush, and Obama, have upheld this standard. Praying as Jesus demonstrated and directed has never been in legal danger. Have, over the past five decades, some principals or teachers gotten confused from time to time? Sure, it is rare, but it does happen. But that's so easy to set straight. The far bigger source of confusion surely comes from people like Mike Huckabee and Brian Fisher telling people, including school kids, that they cannot pray because somehow it only counts if it is led by the state. And by the state, I mean teachers, principals, school board members, all representing the government one way or another via payroll, position of authority, or election slash appointment to office. I'm sorry. But this is sinful and wrong. It deceives people about what the courts have ruled and how our leaders have applied the law. It teaches a message that is contrary to Christian scripture. It proverbially spits in the face of everything Jesus preached during the Sermon on the Mount. Does it matter? Could telling kids they aren't allowed to pray, when they clearly are more than just allowed, could that accomplish any good? Do we as Christians believe that the right kind of lies will deliver a political result that could overcome these sins of distortion and denial? Matthew 18 verses 1 through 6 offers us a staggering warning. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus asking, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus called a child, had him stand in front of them and said, I assure you that unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles himself and becomes like this child. And whoever welcomes in my name one such child as this welcomes me. If anyone should cause one of these little ones to lose his faith in me, it would be better for that person to have a large millstone tied around his neck and be drowned in the deep sea. Matthew 18 verses 1 through 6. No good comes from telling kids not to pray, from saying they cannot when they can, from more than just implying that the only proper way to communicate heart-to-heart -heart with God is to follow the leader, repeat after the teacher or a designated classmate, bow your head in silence as the principal speaks on your behalf, etc., etc. God doesn't live in schools, but prayer does. Today, yesterday, certainly every day that I attended classes, without interruption, for my entire lifetime, and for others before me. Whenever a student or school employee lifts a silent prayer, or speaks privately to God as Jesus said to do, there is prayer in school. And when anyone, including a Christian pastor, tells kids that they cannot do that, or that somehow it isn't really prayer, then it would be better for that person if a heavy millstone were tied around his or her neck and he or she was drowned in the deepest part of the sea. 
How do I know this? Jesus said so in Matthew 18. The Bible says it. That settles it. Right? God doesn't live in schools, churches, or homes. He lives in hearts. Now, it sounds like when I'm sharing those opinions that I'm suggesting that some sort of capital punishment be imposed upon people like Huckabee and Fisher, but nothing could be further from the truth. I think perhaps one of the biggest problems today that you can see inside these incidents, these, these horrible shootings in public places, is twofold, all built around the idea of revenge culture. I think we need to put an end to the revenge culture. But first, I think we need to recognize it for what it is. The number of these killings that end in suicide is telling. And sometimes I think we're in denial about this whole question of suicide. To me, there's a principle out there related to euthanasia and to the control that people want to have over their lives and over their bodies that maybe I'll get to in a future inappropriate conversation. I've had friends who told me, I'm long overdue to hit that topic. But the other thing is, there's a principle that for me goes all the way back to when I was a kid reading science fiction short stories in magazines. I don't remember the name of the story. I don't remember the year or the date of the issue. But I do remember a story that was printed in Analog Magazine, probably in the 1970s, that had this tagline underneath the name of the story, and the name I can't remember. If a man would sacrifice himself for a cause, he surely would sacrifice others. No, I'm not saying this as a recommendation. I'm not offering it up as a political worldview that we should adopt. I'm saying that it's just a plain and simple fact we've got to deal with. And the cause here, in many of these instances, Columbine High School, for example, appears to be revenge. But nothing can be gained from a revenge culture. That's the thing we've got to fix. So no, I'm not saying that we round up the villagers with torches and storm the castle of the Huckabees or the fishers of the world. But at the same time, I've got a fundamental issue with Christians who are afraid to rebuke those in their midst who are perverting the gospel by preaching things which are absolutely false, false from a political perspective, false from a scriptural perspective, and arguably false from a theological perspective. It's about time we turned to these people and said, get thee behind me, Satan, for your words are not the words of God but the selfish and prideful words of man. And if you're among my Christian listeners who fear that maybe I'm being a little bit too hard on these so-called men of God, harsh enough to even question their credentials as men of God, well, let's transfer this conversation over to the Westboro Baptist Church, to Fred Phelps and his clan. At the time I'm recording this, the Westboro Baptist Church crowd has promised to go and protest at the funerals of the children killed in Connecticut. You know, I haven't heard, I haven't heard very many politically active Christians from the right side of the political spectrum sternly, harshly, and forcefully rebuking this so-called Baptist ministry. Oh, there's a lot of embarrassment. There's a lot of shaking of heads. There's a great deal of silent disapproval. But if ever there was a time for rebuke, this is it. Are we not hearing these words of criticism from inside the church against this fringe group that calls itself the church? Because on some level, a lot of people, 
people like Brian Fisher, agree with everything that the Westboro Baptist Church believes in. He may just have a quarrel about their methods. Or he may just have an official quarrel about their methods. He may secretly think that their methods are great. It's nice to have somebody out there on the edge, out there on the bleeding edge, out there pushing the issue. It's about time we rebuked these people as if the very credibility of Christianity was at stake. Because guess what? It probably is. Yes, it is. 